You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. So I think before we get into the text, I think it's always good to examine the context in which a, in which a text is written. And so as we look at this, I, wanna, I want us to consider where we're, where we're talking about here today. And let's start with, let's start with a little geography lesson. So the context of, of what, where we are here is Paul is now on his third missionary journey. Okay, He started, as you see up here, um, he started over here in Antioch through his hometown of Tarsus, headed over here to Ephesus where he spent a lot of time, then moved up here, um, spent a lot of time here in Thessalonica and Macedonia, headed down here to Greece, and, and this was going to be, and then this was really going to be the end of the journey. And then he was, he was, his plan was to take a boat and head over here, back, back over here, and then head down to Jerusalem. He was, you see from the text, he's trying to get there by, by Pentecost. He's excited. He, he just wants to proclaim the gospel. He's got this gift that he's been collecting throughout the churches. He wants, he's eager to get that to, the, to Jerusalem. He's trying to get to Pentecost. He's eager to get there. But while he's in Corinth, he realizes that there is a plot against him. And I, we don't know exactly what that is, whether it's to you know, hijack the boat or somehow it's meant to kill him or cause him harm. So he decides instead to backtrack. Instead of going, taking a straight course, he kind of goes back up here through Macedonia, hits Philippi, goes back down here, and then he's, he's heading down here to Ephesus, but he decides, you know, this is kind of like my home base. If I go here, I'm not gonna, there's no way I'm going to make it to, to Jerusalem on time. So he heads down here to Miletus, a little town. It's 30 miles between Ephesus and Miletus, and, and that's the setting of our text today. He arrives there, and then he calls for the, for the elders of the church in, in Ephesus and says, hey, come down here. I want, I want you to meet me down here. I got, I got a special message for you. I'm heading to Jerusalem, but before I go there, I got a message for you, so come quickly. And that is the, that, that, that's where we are today. And we see from this that the reason he's calling these elders, it's a farewell message. We saw in verse 25 that he knows, he knows his heart, this is the last time he's gonna see these guys. Um, he's, he's got an important message to these people who he spent so much time with. He's invested so much prayer and energy and time in this, in this church. And he says, this is, this is the big one. This is what I want you to know. And when we know that, that farewell messages tend to be pretty powerful. Anyone who's delivering a farewell message of any kind is typically, it's, it's deeply heartfelt, right? It's well thought through. And I think that's what gives this text even more weightiness. This is the Apostle Paul giving his last words to the people that he invested in more than any other group of believers. And I'm pretty certain that, that we can assume that he had their undivided attention. And I would ask that he have ours today as well. You see, in this message, he lets them know that he is compelled by the Holy Spirit to return to Jerusalem. And he says in that, even though he knows that going there, he's not going to be well received. Most likely, he's going to be beaten. He's going to be, prison, he's going to be imprisoned and possibly even killed. The Jews there, he's under no, no assumption that the Jews like him. They hate him. They consider him a traitor. They consider him a lunatic. They want nothing. He's dangerous. And in that context, he makes this 
incredible proclamation in verse 20, 24. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Now, I think as is the case in any scriptural text, one of the first things we've got to assess when looking at a text like this is understand, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Um, in other words, should we simply look at this text and admire the uniqueness of Paul for all of his courage and his conviction and, and revel in the fact that he's this special minister of God? Or is it intended to be more prescriptive? Prescriptive of the conviction and the courage that we should also have in regards to the gospel of God's grace. And for multiple reasons, I will tell you today that I believe Paul's intent here is to be much more prescriptive than it is to be descriptive. Now, I've got three reasons. Here's, here's my three reasons, for, I think, for thinking that's true. Number one, I think of who, of, of who Paul is talking to. These are the men who are going to, he spent a lot of time with. These are the guys who are going to carry on the work that he's established. And one thing I know, we, we learn clearly about Paul throughout the New Testament, that he's a big believer and do as I do. He tells us in 1 Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I have sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach them everywhere else in the church. Paul is all about... I lead by example. But secondly, I think we see another reason. Another reason is that church history is filled with, with saints and martyrs who, are, who considered the spread of the gospel to be infinitely more important than their personal comfort or even their lives. Um, and we, we see that we start with, with, the, with, the, very, with the apostles. Um, you, you think of Peter and John. I think of the New Testament. We have Peter and John, and, and they were just—they just walked out of the of, uh, out of the temple, and they were being threatened. They just were threatened about about preaching. And and their their response to this and say, "Hey, don't do this again. You're going to be beaten. It's going to be worse for you." And their response was, "Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard." We see it in, 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 in the martyrs of the English Reformation. Guys like Hugh Latimer, who famously said to his friend Nicholas Ridley, moments before they were both burned at the stake for their faith, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. That smells like Acts twenty twenty four to me. If you follow the news, you saw it just last week in the city, the young man who, who freely gave his life in a bold attempt to bring the gospel for the first time to a small, isolated tribe on a tiny island in the Bay of Bengal. 
All of these and thousands more have clearly valued staying on course far more than staying alive. And I think most importantly, the words of Paul in Acts 20, 24 reflect the words of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Whoever gains his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. If the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Clearly, this concept of treasuring Christ and his gospel more than our lives, more than comfort, is not limited to a group of super Christians or missionaries, but it's to anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. So, if in fact Paul is not just describing his life, but giving us a pattern by which we also must live, then that leads us to another question I think that we must wrestle with. And that question is, what is it about the gospel of God's grace that would compel Paul and should compel us to consider our lives as no value in relationship to our, our quest to proclaim it boldly at whatever personal cost is, if is necessary, even death. I think most of us here would say that we treasure the gospel. You're probably here because you treasure the gospel. But I wonder how many of us really love it in an Acts 20, 24 kind of way. And I would contend that if we don't treasure the gospel to the degree that Paul describes in this verse, then it's likely because we either don't understand it or we haven't experienced it in the same way that Paul did. So this is where I want to camp out for a while. Now, I'm under no illusion that my feeble words could ever even begin to do justice to the stunning magnificence of the gospel of God's grace. But I'm compelled to do my best to paint a word picture to do, my, to do it to the very best of my ability. So in order to, I think, to begin to understand grace or appreciate grace, you first must build upon a right understanding of justice. And I think that's where the majority of the human race gets off track. I think it can be stated as a given that, that every human, every human is created with an innate sense of uh, a desire for justice. We all want justice. We all want things to be fair. We want there to be consequences for the actions of people who do evil things. We certainly expect our elected judges to be just, don't we? And I would imagine that few people truly have a problem with a God who punishes evil and rewards righteousness. It's in us. But you see, the problem lies not in, in our desire for justice, the problem lies in the fact that we think far too highly of ourselves. You see, not only do most people believe that they're capable of living in a manner worthy of God's approval, 
I would say that most, in fact, believe that their goods, that their good deeds, at the very least, outweigh their, their bad deeds. And by that standard, God is perfectly just in judging them as good or righteous. That's the basis of virtually every other religion in the world. Do enough good to outweigh your bad, and then you're good with God. That's how you, this is how you attain right standing with God. Pursue good deeds, and he will approve of you. The problem, unfortunately, is that if the Bible is, in fact, the inspired word of God, then that premise is deeply flawed. Because Scripture clearly states that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one, hear it, there is no one who does good, not even one. How can your good deeds possibly outweigh your bad deeds if you don't have any good deeds? But gratefully, it is at this very point that the gospel of the grace of God begins to sparkle. You see, for if we were even remotely capable of earning right standing before God through our own virtue, then grace would be pretty unnecessary, wouldn't it? It is the very truth that while we were in fact dead in our trespasses and that we were by nature enemies of God, that the gospel of grace stepped in and he made a way to reconcile God's perfect love with his perfect justice. You see, he couldn't, he couldn't just look away and let all of the guilty people of all of humanity go free, or he wouldn't be just, would he? And yet if he allowed the human race to remain in their sin and face the just wrath of God, it would be pretty difficult for us to experience the perfect love of God. So what happened? In order to bridge the unbridgeable, God did the unfathomable. He arranged for his own perfectly holy son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh as an infant son of a virgin, to live a completely sinless life so that he could make him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, what, what kind of love would make a father be willing to kill his own son so that those who hated him and rebelled against him might go free and live? Not this father. This is the kind of good news that could, that could make a man dedicate his entire life to proclaiming it at whatever expense to his comfort or safety. This is a love that, that we can't fathom. Charles Spurgeon painted the picture this way. He said, it's as though there had been a great judgment and the judge had passed from county to county and a number of prisoners had been condemned. And there remained nothing further in the course of justice but that their senses should be carried into execution. 
But lo, suddenly, by the silver trumpets of messengers clothed in silk and apparel, it is proclaimed that the king has discovered a method by which, without violating justice, he can deal with the condemned in pure mercy and so grant them free pardon, immediate release from prison, and a place in his majesty's favor and service. This would be glad tidings in the condemned cells, would it not? Would you not be glad to carry such news to the poor prisoners? Hmm. And yet, remarkably, this is not the whole of the magnificence of the gospel. For you see, despite such, a, such an a, amazing gift being offered, as was mentioned above, the depths of men's depravity prevents them from even understanding, not to mention gladly accepting God's unmerited gift. Remember what we said, no one chooses God. No one seeks after him, not even one. And therefore the gospel of the grace of God has to take it a step further and also provide the gift of faith so that those who are dead in their trespasses may actually behold God's wonderful offer of grace. Ephesians 2 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of your, yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Faith is the facet of God's grace that allows spiritually blind people to lose the scales of their perceived self-righteousness and to begin to see their helpless state before God. And then and only then will they begin to run headlong into the arms of this loving God, pleading for the gift of forgiveness and for this astounding gift of grace. But you see, this, even this is not all there is to the majesty of the gospel of the grace of God. Because you see, there's certainly, I think there are those who would rightly question whether the horrific extent of their sin and rebellion might prevent them from being a recipient of this wonderful grace. Surely there was some, there, there, there's some who have committed deeds so, so heinous, so evil, that certainly is beyond God's ability to forgive. They can't possibly be worthy of a, be a recipient of God's grace. And I think in order to address this concern, we first have to ask another question. And that is why? Why would a holy God go to such extremes for the sake of wretched men who neither love him or seek him? Good question, right? What's his motive What's in it for God? What's in it for him? And I will tell you, make no mistake, God indeed has a motive. He does have a motive that justifies this stunning grace. What's that motive? That the glory of his perfect love and mercy might be revealed and on display for all to see. The Lord says, the Lord says in the Old Testament, he says, it's not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. Even though you, even through you, when through you, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. 
Paul says in Ephesians, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. You see, if God's motive is to display the supreme holiness of his name. It's so that we can see the brilliance of, of his glory and his grace and his loving character. And that's why he saves wretched sinners. Well, then it makes sense that if a sinner were be, to be able by his actions to be beyond the work of God's grace, if he could be so bad that he could be beyond God's gra grace, then it would reveal that God's grace has a limit to it. And thus, it would diminish that same supremacy, wouldn't it? And heaven forbid that the darkness of any sin, any amount of sin, would ever be able to even partially eclipse the brilliant glory of God's grace. If in, listen to me. If in his mercy, God has allowed you to experience his grace on your life, be very certain it's not because you are so good, but because you're so evil. It's not because of your effort or pursuit. It's because you are a helpless traitor. And in that darkness, because he, re he redeemed such a sinner as you, he looks magnificent. We see it for what it is. It is against the darkest backdrop that reveals the great beauty of any diamond. And so it is with the jewel of the gospel of the grace of God. And that gospel is only available to those who are willing to claim it as their greatest need. But that's not all. You see, one might say, to understand my depravity, if I, even if I go there, to understand my depravity and I understand how bad I am, then surely that would reveal my inability to keep or sustain such a priceless gift, even if it were given to me. My sinful nature would likely make a mockery of such a gift. Certainly, I would end up trampling on such a great gift I have been given and, and would prove to be utterly unworthy of having received it in the first place. And to this, I would reply, you're absolutely correct. But there's yet another facet of God's grace. And that is that he anticipated this as well, and he made a provision the gospel of God's grace proclaims that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. The new has come. For by one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. Did you hear that? By one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever. Who? Those who are being made holy. Why? So that we may serve the living God. By grace, we are being changed into his very image from one degree of glory to another. It's by God's grace that a way was made for man to be counted as righteous before him. And it's by God's grace that he gave us the gift of faith that we might be able to see our need and accept this gift of salvation. And beyond that, it is God's grace that not only prevents us from returning to our old life of sin, but actually begins to transform us into his image through his gift of sanctification. And yet, 
I still haven't proclaimed all the glory of the grace of God. Because you see, we haven't yet considered the crown jewel of this truly amazing grace. You see, we still have one great problem that stands between us and the full glory of God's grace. And that problem is death. You see, because of the curse, we are all headed to the same destiny in this life. And as such, it would seem that even if we are blessed to be recipients of this, of God's grace, the bad news is that it comes with an inevitable expiration date. Therefore, to, I think to, to, to cry out for the grace of God on one's deathbed would seem to be kind of a worthless endeavor, wouldn't it? You have no time to enjoy it. But you see, the greatest display of God's grace is that he did not call us to experience the glory of his grace in the vapor of this life alone. To give us the greatest gift, he conquered our greatest obstacle. Some would suggest that, that, I, that God's grace shone brightest on the criminal's cross on Calvary. But I would contend that it actually shone the brightest at the garden tomb. This is not to diminish the amazing work of Christ on the cross, even a little. But hear me, church, the greatest display of the gospel of the grace of God is that our great Savior, who died for our sins, triumphantly walked out of the tomb three days later, and not as some creepy zombie, but as our spectacular risen king. He conquered sin and death in his wake. Scripture says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been risen from, has raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death, the sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This, my friends, is the gospel of the grace of God. This is the gospel that compelled the apostle Paul to proclaim, I, my, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is simply to finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. It is this gospel that made Spurgeon respond to Paul saying, by saying, ah, Paul, I can understand you getting into a holy excitement over such a revel revelation as that of free grace. I can understand your being willing to throw your life away that you might tell your fellow sinners that grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. My heart leaps within me as I repeat it in this hall and tell the penitent, the desponding, and the despairing that though their sins deserve hell, yet grace can give them heaven and make them fit for it. And that as a sovereign act of love, altogether independent of their character of what they deserve. 
This is the grace that has led untold saints and martyrs through the generations to endure great suffering and horrible deaths. Why? That they might finish their course and the ministry that they received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the stunning gospel of grace. So that leaves us with really one last question to answer. And that is, what keeps so many of us here from proclaiming and testifying and living out this verse? I will tell you, it, it is a question that keeps me up at night. Many nights as I, as I contemplate my own life. And it's a question that I would implore each of you to think about today. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to acknowledge that most of us really do not share Paul's sentiment in this verse. And we have to ask why. And I would contend that if we don't, it's because of two things. We're not compelled by the Spirit due to us thinking far too highly of our lives. And secondly, of thinking far too little of the gospel of the grace of God. I think it's important that we don't overlook that Paul considered his mission to testify to the gospel of grace of God. It wasn't his primary mission to exegete it. Or to teach it as a science teacher teaches about geology or astronomy. Do not think for a second that they're the buy into the lie that only pastors or seminary graduates are called or are qualified to share the gospel. To testify is not to share something you learned, it is to share what you have seen or experienced. We see this three times in the, book of, in the book of Acts. Paul shares the story of his conversion. I think it's fair to assume that these are mere examples of the probably hundreds of times that Paul told the people the amazing story of what happened to him on the road to Damascus and the days that followed. He shared how the religious, as a religious leader, he imagined himself as one of God's most favored until he was confronted by Jesus himself as a persecutor of God, not an advocate. He went from seeing himself as one of the most righteous to accounting himself as the chief of sinners. The gospel of the grace of God blinded his physical eyes as it opened his spiritual eyes. It brought him to, a knee, to his knees only to lift him to the heights of the knowledge that by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, he was truly made righteous in the sight of God. Amen? And make no mistake, Paul wasn't primarily compelled by what he read or heard or seen in other people. He was compelled first and foremost by what the grace of God had done for him. And then he was, because he was so compelled by what the grace of God had done for him, it made him compelled to want that for his brothers and sisters. What drove Paul was a heart, an unrelenting compassion and love for, his, for the people, for the Jews and the Gentiles that he ministered to. We see this in, in, uh, in Romans 9. 
Here's, here's Paul's words at the beginning of Romans 9. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience, tes- my conscience, conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. That's what drove Paul. Passion for the gospel and the passion for people. And it's what is meant to drive us as well. If we see the gospel for all it's worth and we see, we acknowledge that there is a dying world. There are people all around us that are facing an eternal wrath of God. We cannot sit here and do nothing. We can't sit here and just, and just blindly enjoy sports and, and all the, the, the creature comforts of our culture and say, well, good thing I'm in. Listen, listen close. I think another one of the horrendous lies that I think prevents far too many believers from sharing their faith and testifying to this, this gospel of grace is the belief that their story is not all that interesting or compelling because they were saved at a young age or that they were always just a kind of a pretty good person. Guys, I hear this far more than I should or ever want to. And what I would say to this is that is a horrific insult to the gospel of God's grace. Hear me. If God in his eternal kindness called you to himself before you ever had a chance to make a train wreck of your life through your own sin and rebellion, then I would contend that you should be more compelled to proclaim your story of grace at whatever cost. Not less. Of this I am sure. God doesn't raise healthy living souls from the dead. Only dirty rotting corpses. A soul that God raises to life at age five was every bit as dead as the worst convict he raised on death row at age 50. Dead is dead. And the other reason I think we don't live out Acts 24 as we should is because we we value our lives way too much. We consider our lives as far too precious and valuable to ourselves. Let's face it, we, we live in what is arguably the most narcissistic culture that maybe has ever existed. The American dream has turned untold people's lives into nightmares. And yet we continue to hold it up as a model of success. And let's be honest, in church we may verbally decry the false hope of the American dream. And yet in reality, if we're really honest, The only difference between us and the secular world is that we somehow try to merge the Great Commission and the American dream. And in God's economy, there is no way to pursue both at the same time. Jesus didn't stutter about this. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't give your life to two things at once. The American dream is self-centered. The gospel is God-centered. You can't do both at the same time.
My challenge to each of you this week is to honestly imagine how your life would look differently if the gospel of the grace of God so compelled you that you would be glad to risk your comfort, your safety, your finances, your house, your job, even your life to proclaim it to a dying world. I challenge you to talk with your spouse this week. Talk about how Acts 2024 should change your marriage, how it should change your family. Missional community leaders, I challenge you, I dare you this week to discuss this with your group. How, how would Acts 2024 make your group look differently if it was the driving force? And I want to especially challenge those who are single and those who are empty nesters to think deeply about this. In my study, I ran across an article by Francis Chan who stated, I meet very few elderly people who lives, whose lives make sense to me biblically. He said the church is in dire need of older people who live radically for their faith. Would your empty nest retirement years look differently if they reflected Acts 2024? I know, it's, I, I know it's hard to tell now, but in high school, I actually was, ran both cross-country and track. And yeah, go ahead and laugh. That's true. <laughs> the most, but you know, the most important thing I think I learned from being a runner is the kick. Any runner here knows what I'm talking about. When I ran the 440, as they called it back then, which is one lap around the track, I think they call it the 400 now. <clears throat> when you turn that last corner toward the finish is when you started your kick. And that meant that, that no matter how tired you were, you took it to another level and you left every ounce of strength that you had in that last hundred yards, right? In cross country, at whatever point you got to where you got that first glimpse of the finish line, you, turned, you came out of the woods and you turned that corner and you saw the finish line, you started your kick. And even though you, were, you just run three or four or five miles and you, you went into a full sprint despite exhaustion, you didn't see the finish line and, and, and slow down to a jog or a walk. You know, I just turned 57 very recently. And you know, I've, I've known in my heart for a couple of years now that this is the time to start my kick. I'm not looking forward to easing into retirement. Church, I, I, I stand before you that my desire, my passion is to look forward is to, is to starting to bust into a gospel sprint for whatever days I have left, whether it's 20 minutes or 20 years. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You see, Acts 20, 24 was the start of Paul's kick. And 2 Timothy 4 is him busting across the finish line in an all-out sprint. Paul didn't leisurely stroll across the finish line of life, and church neither should we. 
So let me close with the words of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Redeemer, the message of Acts 20:24 is not just for Paul. It's not just for the apostles. Or it's not just for pastors or spiritual elite. It's the ministry of every believer who has ever been a recipient of the glorious gospel of God's grace. And I will tell you, the prayer for myself and as your pastor, a prayer that I have for each of, each of you is that we would live our lives going forward in such a way that not in an untruthful way, but with every bit of truth and integrity that whoever leads our funerals can, can honestly say, he poured out his life like a drink offering for the sake of the gospel. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith and he completed the course and the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Well done, good and faithful servant. Go and share your master's joy. Pray with me. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.